0: welcome back to another episode of floor nine i am your host scott elchison adam my co-host is here with me but before we dive into this week's episode i also want to take a moment to remind everyone to give floor nine a review on apple Podcasts. it only takes about five minutes to leave a review and it really does help the show grow and get us ranked on the apple podcast charts uh, so if you have the time we greatly appreciate it uh, and if you are currently listening on apple podcasts you can actually leave us a review while you listen All you need to do is go to our Floor 9 show page within Apple Podcasts, scroll down to the bottom of the page until you see ratings and reviews, and then click write a review. Uh, From there, all you got to do is uh, write a sentence or two about why you love the show and hit submit. So again, thank you uh, for all the love and uh, reviews on Apple Podcasts. We greatly appreciate it. So with that, Adam, shall we dive into this week's news?
1: Yeah, let's talk about the news.
0: The first bit of news here is Apple had their third event of of the fall um so apple has announced a new mac lineup with their custom apple silicon m1 chip um so adam as our resident expert here on all thing apple what does this mean what are these new chips (laughs) uh is it a big deal uh where is apple at
1: um, it, it's a big deal in uh, the sense that it will dramatically change the landscape of competition for desktop and laptop computers uh, over the next couple of years. Um, these new M1 chips, they started with the low-end, so they're only um, releasing updates to the MacBook Air, uh, the lowest-end MacBook Pro, the 13-inch low-end MacBook Pro, um, and the Mac Mini. Um, and the, and yet, even at the low end, these uh, M1 chips are actually faster than, on single-threaded performance, they're faster than literally any other Mac shipping, including the Mac Pro, um, that the, that starts at you know $5,000. They're just phenomenally faster than anything that's come before them. They start at, uh, I think, $700 for the Mac Mini and $1,000 for the MacBook Air. Um, and this is really going to put uh, a lot of pressure on uh, Intel and Microsoft on the Windows side of things to keep up with them because obviously they're you know again this is they're starting at the low end whatever they come out with next year for the higher end laptops and, and desktop systems will be even faster um, and all of this is also happening while they've basically doubled battery life uh, for the laptops so um, you know I think when we start thinking about what a, a an IMac or a Mac pro would look like where there isn't those uh, power concerns um, it's just going to be a total monster Intel and Microsoft', Uh, Microsoft looking to go to, to arm windows has been trying to do an arm transition for a while, but because Microsoft doesn't own the whole stack in the same way that Apple does, it's been a little touch and go. Um, so I think it's going to take a while for the windows side of the ecosystem to really uh, be able to compete uh, at these speeds. Now, these are not the only things that are important. The CPU speeds are incredibly impressive, but um, high performance graphics are something that Apple is not dealing with right now. They're only doing integrated graphics and their integrated graphics are very good, but um, you're still going to get better performance from a high end uh, GPU. Um, so, you know, there there is a, a few other vectors there, but I, I think from what we've seen from Apple's uh, chip Development team, uh, there's nothing to suggest that they're not going to compete with the very high end of highest end machines in the next few years.
0: When you see these new chips that are in these computers and how fast they are, like does that um, bode well for any industries in particular? Like I'm thinking, like machine learning and AI seems like are going are gonna to benefit greatly from these new chips because they're able to do a lot more processing, quicker, easier, shorter time lengths. You know, so that way this that entire industry is more productive.
1: Yeah, I mean, one thing that these chips are, are getting with them that we haven't really seen on a desktop or laptop system before is uh, an, a dedicated neural engine for machine learning processing. That's something that that iPhones and iPads have had for a while. Um, and because obviously this is a similar architecture, they're bringing that along with it. So it's sort of TBD, how that performance will look um, you know, on the desktop and what that will enable. Uh, but just from, I think the, the best way to think about it is... Um, Production of high end video, production of high end 3D assets, those all used to require, you know, a bigger, beefier desktop computer. And Apple was very forthright in saying, you can edit 8K video on a MacBook Air that costs a thousand bucks now and it's no problem. Um, and so I think that that's, that's really the message is they're pulling out these roadblocks to accessibility to things like video production, things like 3D asset creation. And I think eventually, you know, We'll come up with new use cases for for especially when we see what these high end computers running the the Apple Silicon look look like uh, next year. We'll come up with new use cases for for using that compute power we always do. Um, but I think that in the short term, it's just about making the making it more accessible to uh, you know your average college student who is going to buy a MacBook Air when they go off to college.
0: So next up, uh, we have some retail and fashion news. Uh, VF Corp has announced that they are acquiring streetwear brand Supreme. For $2.1 billion. Um, if you don't know what Supreme is, Supreme, I would say, is the brand behind the drop culture.
1: They're, yeah, they're focused on those limited edition drops and collaborations with brands. Um, so, you know, we've seen, uh, you know, Supreme collaborate with with uh with other fashion brands but all the way down to things like uh band-aids and oreos that uh are <laughs> end up with a super high resale value on eBay uh because they're so hard to get and supreme uh you know is i think the canonical example of uh collaborations also of lending their street cred to other brands uh in order to boost their cool factor
0: yep absolutely and, and notably with Supreme, um, a lot of their value and draw was around this idea of scarcity. And it'll be interesting to see if they're able to keep that um, model going under a larger corporation that has already announced they want them to expand their physical retail internationally. Um, so it'll be interesting if Supreme can kind of keep what they're known for um, alive as they start to grow
1: yeah, I mean, I'm a little skeptical. Honestly, we've been seeing the drop culture start to decline already. That it's, it's, you know, as with anything that is tied to things being Things being cool or in fashion, things go in waves. You can't be; it's very difficult to be cool all the time and, and in style all the time. This might be supreme cashing out as they look ahead and see that it's going to be rough going going forward. <laughs> um, which, in which case, good for them. They they had a huge impact on on culture, so they they deserve it honestly.
0: Our last bit of news, uh, also an acquisition, comes from Spotify. Uh, Spotify has announced that they're going to buy Megaphone, uh, the podcasting hosting platform, for $235 million. Uh, So this is just Spotify again. uh, They are looking to really consolidate the podcasting market. Uh, They are looking to win, uh, and they are going to pay the money to win. Uh, in this uh, in this space
1: seems like what three times a year maybe they buy a yeah, major uh, podcasting company um, and uh, I think this is interesting in that uh, it's coming. Um, along with rumors that Spotify might be testing soon some subscription uh, podcast services um, that would be separate from the spo- existing Spotify Premium music subscription, uh, and I think that uh, that it starts to look like we're getting a better sense as to what the ultimate plan for for podcasts uh, for Spotify are. Um, and that the rumors are that that would that even at the subscription podcast level, the lower tiered one would still include ads. So having these uh, this um, you know, targeting and uh, dynamic insertion is uh, an important part of that uh, playbook, I think.
0: Well, listeners, that is going to wrap up this week's news. Uh, next up, myself and Adam are going to jump over into the main conversation to talk with Joshua Locock about media responsibility in 2020. All right, listeners, and welcome to the main conversation of this week's episode. Uh, Back with us is Joshua Locock, UM's Chief Digital Officer and Global Brand Safety Officer, uh, for a conversation about media responsibility. So Joshua, welcome back to Floor 9.
2: It's great to be back here.
0: Oh, We're uh, excited to have you back. Uh, So let's just get right into it. Uh, To kind of kick off this conversation, we wanted to chat with you uh, going back a few months about the, the Facebook boycott. Uh, we were talking to you and you were really one of the individuals that were in charge of leading these conversations with the Facebook ex- executive team, uh, as well as other, you know, larger social platforms on, you know, how they were dealing with a lot of the issues that we see on the platform, t- you know, today. And so can you give us some insight into how these conversations went uh, and what you were really trying to uh, achieve?
2: Now, look, that's a really good way to open this all up. And there's, probably a multi-tiered answer to that which Mm -hmm. is you know from an agency perspective the day-to-day contacts that you know we all have were rather i'll say empathetic to what we were asking for but when you're considering the facebook boycott or any sort of big change to a platform this is always at a pay grade higher than the day-to-day people that you interact with and these are big broad policy changes for the, the platforms And so those conversations at the higher level were much more, I'll say, direct and difficult and complicated Mm -hmm. because getting a a platform to change its behavior, especially when they're global platforms and it's not just, you know, we like to oversimplify technology as a flick of a switch. It's not just a flick of a switch. It's thousands of lines of codes and re-architecting systems. Right. You need to approach it with a mix of you know pragmatism and purpose to get the outcome you desire
0: got it and i mean when you when you walked into those conversations i guess what were some of the things that that you were asking like as a larger advertising industry um you know where were you trying to kind of find some middle ground with facebook for example or even twitter on um some of those policies
2: uh, I don't know if there's a a middle ground, so to speak. <laughs> and I, I hate to sort of say that. Uh, look, we're we're looking for you know protection of people, and we're looking for more transparency into the process. And if that's the way I would boil the two sorts of things down, mm. and there's not really a middle ground in that area. You either protect people, or you're not protecting people, and you're either transparent or you're not. Right. Uh, where we got to if there is a a compromise or a negotiation was, and this is where I'll say again, pragmatism and purpose is the timing on when certain things can be achieved and how do you actually move the ball forward? Okay. Because one of the ways at least on, you know, to give away my tactics on a boycott and a negotiation, a boycott's very absolute and it sets conditions for re-entry. And, Sometimes those things are easy and sometimes they're hard. And so really what you need to go is, what's the end state we want to get to? Here's all the things that need to be done. Is there a way of getting a conditional way of we've reached an agreement and some milestones we can measure a partner's progress against Mm -hmm. so that we're holding them accountable, but you're not necessarily, you know, and this is not video, but you're not crossing your arms and digging your heels and going, I'm not going to buy media or I'm not going to do anything For 12 months.
1: What do you think about the uh, amount of power that we have as a media company and coming in uh, representing a lot of major brands? You know, we talk, we were talking about this um, a little bit earlier uh, internally, but just that, you know, Facebook and Twitter and all the major social networks, they really benefit from the long tail of advertising. And a, a lot of their income does come from those, those smaller advertisers. Whereas, you know, normally, you know, Ten years ago, if we if we were going into these conversations, of course, they'd be very different kinds of conversations. Uh, but it would be with you know newspapers and tele- television and radio, where the the big advertisers really are the ones, the big brands are really the ones with the power. Uh, that isn't quite the case with with Facebook and Twitter. So how do you how do you see that, and and how do you think how much influence do you think big brands and, and media companies have with these platforms? I think it
2: unlocks or highlights sort of like an interesting competition dilemma which is in the course of the boycott, and I would agree most of the revenue from the platforms comes from the mid to long tail. If, you know, the major platforms don't acquiesce to demands from the marketplace, then it does look, make them look monopolistic, right? So that's a, that's a really big dilemma for all the platforms when people say, well, you, you don't actually have power over them, I might not exercise financial power, but there is this consequential risk that it makes them look like they have too much power themselves if the marketplace can't force a change in behavior. So I'd say we do have some power, maybe by virtue of regulators. I think there's a couple of other areas where, you know, large agencies and advertisers have power, or at least to a limited extent, which is there is a Wall Street marketplace perception if large advertisers are making noises about one platform and if another platform is going to benefit as a result, Wall Street's interests will shift. And so that impacts your share price and employee morale and all those sorts of things because staff might not get their bonuses or the share price might not perform as well. So you've got to really unpack what market power means and I think the other one is the more you have brands speak out and so this is less about agencies because at the end of the day no one really boycotts an agency consumers engage with brands people engage with brands and so when brands take on a role of activism does that actually then create you know a consumer-led revolt or action against a platform so there's multiple ways you can exercise your power it's not just financial but you've got to, like, look at all of these pieces and work out how you're putting those pieces of puzzle together to get the outcome you need.
0: When you were going through, I guess, these conversations, um, you know, it seems like some of the results that came out of it, you know, internally were like these concepts of media responsibility and essentially 10 commandments uh, that your team came up with to hold different platforms accountable, so, can you walk us through what these Ten Commandments are, uh, and I guess like the significance behind each of the different commandments?
2: Yeah, I mean, Ten Commandments makes it sound much more lofty and ambitious, and that it came down from a mountaintop than it probably it's great, is. It's great branding. <laughs> you know, uh, if, if there's one thing we it, do, we
0: do great branding.
2: <laughs> so, I mean, the whole purpose of the Media Responsibility Principles was what was being called out during the boycott was fair and reasonable to ask for, if you take a sort of step back, those requests need to be applied equitably across all platforms because you don't want to be in a position where it's Facebook this week, Twitter next week, YouTube, the following. So you need to lift, you know, all boats. Uh, So the 10 principles we came up with and, you know, to sort of quickly rattle them off, there's promote respect, protect people, uh, diverse and representative data collection and use, Children's well being, no hate speech, no misinformation, disinformation, policy enforcement, advertising transparency and accountability. And they're all available on the media brand's website. You know, mm-hmm. people didn't sort of jot them down there. And what we looked for is things that aligned to corporate social responsibility guidelines. And that was probably the first and I'll dare say the smartest thing that we did because mm-hmm. Every and I'll pick diverse and representative, and because that's been in the news a lot of late and very important. Is every company has a diverse and representation or a diversity, equity, and inclusion policy Mm -hmm. that they will state publicly and it's their hiring policy and everything else. So, if that's a corporate policy for an organization, it's easy to go and say, Well, that should be a policy for the way you apply and think about media investment. Because if it's something you require from other suppliers, why wouldn't you? require from media suppliers and same with p- protection of people or data use like they they map back to these corporate governance principles that a lot of organizations have mm-hmm. and so what we were looking to do is not the other part is not to set a standard so we're not saying that you need to 50 percent diversity and representation in your media Right, But asking the questions that organizations need answers to so that they're comfortable that the right steps are being taken. And then we did an audit or assessment of social platforms to benchmark how platforms were against each other. Because, again, these are highly competitive platforms. And if you've got principles like this, you actually get the same set of data from everyone. and You can compare apples to apples. Mm -hmm. You can actually say, well... You think you're doing a really good job, but you're not as good as platform B, and the natural competition and enthusiasm in Silicon Valley to outcompete and outmaneuver each other forces them to get better.
0: Right, and I I just want to clarify quickly with these ten media responsibility principles, are these principles really geared towards us as media buyers to say, hey, you know, here is you know an easy uh, sheet that you can reference. Uh, so when you do go to the market and you are placing medias you can um, benchmark Facebook Twitter Instagram whatever against these principles um, or is it you know more for the platforms of sell to say hey these are what we're looking for from you when it comes to you know your improvement as a platform or is it kind of a mix of both
2: I, look the unhelpful thing is it's a mix of both but I I would go <laughs> with, I'll take it a step further which is the I'll say it's probably closer to the piece of paper because one of the ideas is you will institutionalize these questions in an organization and in every media conversation. So it's not that these things are the flavor of the week. It's in every quarterly business review meeting with a media Mm -hmm. partner. You go, here's the 10 things that matter for us from a media partner. How are you tracking? It's not to be punitive or punish anyone. It's really... these things matter we need to have a conversation about them all the time
0: right okay that that makes sense and you know you were talking about you know the benchmarking essentially different platforms against each other um what were the like results of something like that first you know initial um like analysis of all these different platforms did you see um some platforms you know, perform better than you had expected? Uh, were there anything that was kind of unsurprising in the
2: first I mean, all, results? All the results were surprising. Okay. In some way, shape, or form. Uh, you know, and we're we're doing these quarterly and the next one will be due out soon. So I'm not going to talk about last results because they could be dated by next okay. week. Okay. But to give you a sense, uh, and I'll, I'll name... YouTube, just for the purpose of argument, YouTube has clearly, and I'm air quoting for people that are listening, benefited uh, from two years of difficulty around brand safety and responsibility. So if you think Mm -hmm. back two years ago, they had a lot of issues and incidents and they really learned a lot from that. So they developed clearer policies and frameworks and action items. There's other platforms I won't name anyone who might think that issues don't apply to them because of the nature of their audience or the market that they operate in Mm -hmm. or things or services that they offer. And all I can say is, unfortunately, in my bitter personal experience in brand safety, it's a game of whack-a-mole. So it was great that YouTubers learned a lot over the past two years, as an example, but if they eradicate an issue from their platform, it just is going to migrate somewhere else. And right. that's what we have to be mindful of. And that's why what we kept saying during the assessment is there's no exceptions. You can't say this doesn't apply to me because hand on heart, it will come and apply to your platform at some point because bad actors want to be bad actors somewhere.
0: Right. And so they'll, they'll find the platform that'll allow it for the longest period. For the duration. Yeah. yeah right. Right. Got it. Okay.
2: It's like if you, if you if you if your mum says no, you go ask your father. Yeah. <laughs> kind of thing. So when a platform says no, you go well. If I can't do it here, I'm going to try over there.
0: Is there any, I guess, inherent risk of that as you start to see, like, we start pushing, you know, different views off of global platforms, mainstream platforms, into smaller niches of the internet?
2: I sort of take the path or the view. There's a question around monetization. Mm -hmm. So there's a separate thing that we all need to have a long, hard conversation about, which is how platforms make money. And if inappropriate content or content that causes harm to society is taken off platforms that are openly monetized by the advertising ecosystem, Right. And you can start up another platform. You know, we could all start another platform tomorrow for the cost of hosting fees and the like. But if you can't actually make enough money to sustain it, it'll eventually burn itself out. And so that's, I'll say it was my private hope, but now I'm sharing it here. It's my public hope (laughs) is (laughs) that if these sorts of conversations move off, advertiser funded platforms they need to move Mm -hmm. to other environments and look for other monetization routes and that becomes their challenge and i always say that you know monetizations a privilege it's not a right and advertising budgets are finite and i make decisions every day for clients where and where they won't spend money mainly because my budgets are finite and that's not censorship that's just the way the market works Mm -hmm. so if conversations move elsewhere, they need to look for different ways of monetization and then it becomes the regulator challenge of how they police and manage for the in air quotes dangerous or inappropriate conversations.
1: Joshua, we were talking about parlor earlier. yeah, uh, and I think the a, a question that comes up is uh, around platforms like that is monetization. and like I, I don't know my opinion was that they probably can't monetize through advertising because of the sort of reason for being that they that they have Um, or if they can it it would be a a very limited uh, sort of supply of advertisers Um, and so we were talking about other ways that they might monetize but I don't know if you have a you know perspective on on that because I feel like it is the in some ways you know we in some ways we've been talking about Niche social platforms and, and burgeoning, and that that is a trend that is happening sort of across the board. But depending on which niche certain platforms fall into, they it might affect how they monetize um, and their ability to to engage with advertisers.
2: Uh, I mean, yeah, I'll I'll take it in a different direction again. And I I do like your questions, Adam, and I will answer them at some point. Just, I always like to take them and sort of twist and. <laughs> turn them i mean i let's... rambled
1: for a good 30 seconds so it's yeah. fine we're taking a <laughs> talk... scenic route today <laughs> yeah but
2: we you know there's been a lot of talk for years about you know should social platforms be subscription-based anyway yeah. so if you step away from parlor and just go is that really just going to be the path forward for any platform that it has to actually look beyond advertising for monetization? That's arguably the case to some extent. And you look at, and I'll I'll use LinkedIn as an example. LinkedIn actually makes a lot more money from subscription-based revenue services, not from end users, but from recruitment tools and the like than it does from advertising. So conceivably, there is a path to subscription services. I, I guess the big question is, is there enough of a subscription path to build a sustainable business that pays the cost of developers hosting everything else that you need. There's another one that I think sort of becomes even more problematic on that, which is a lot of platforms survive on anonymity or pseudo anonymity. Mm -hmm. And once you're paying, you have to provide some sort of personal details and payment feature and your anonymity disappears. So does that actually stop platforms from being, you know, and we've spoken a lot about the negative for platforms but platforms can also be very important for freedom of speech to sort of highlight social yep. injustices if people are paying the freedom to speak openly and that anonymity disappears and could put you at risk so there's a very fine line hmm. between these things that i don't think one as a society we've particularly grappled with and two if you look you know post the us selection in a section 230 as regulations come about what platforms are even liable for also changes the the scope of these conversations
1: yeah i think that you know there's been a lot of speculation around this but depending on the direction that section 230 reforms go things might be a lot more you know this might be a, a sort of a moot point in terms of of questions of free speech because it might be mm-hmm. Improb- it might be very difficult to run a platform that allows and you know anything close to what is currently allowed on, on on the platforms.
2: I'll say there's limitations on what you can and can't say, and you could end up on one where there's no limits at all. And I keep sort of flagging a, a risk for the platforms. Is the more you dig your heels in and say we categorically always believe in freedom of speech. You open the door to where anything might be permissible on the platform and you don't have an advertiser-supported business. Mm -hmm. Right. And so all you need to introduce, like, like, these these are big issues and probably bigger than when we're going to resolve in today's podcast. (laughs) But I think they're things that the industry needs to seriously grapple with and talk about because there's wide-ranging, you know, implications for the future of the way Content is available and funded for everyone,
0: right? And and to that point, I would like to kind of get into this idea of like what the our client responses have been. Like this idea of you know there is a responsibility with the dollars you have and where you advertise. To your point, you are supporting a type of content or you're funding uh, a platform, and so I don't think in the past that was necessarily something that a lot of you know you know, advertisers marketers thought about was like, Oh, you know, I'm just putting my money there to reach my audience versus kind of flipping it and saying, you know, you're voting or you're supporting with your advertising dollars, platforms, you know, success or not success. And, you know, essentially their, their, their views and their standpoints on certain different things. So, you know, what really has that, you know, client response been in, you know, this idea of taking on more responsibility as a, as a marketer of where you're placing your, your money.
2: Uh, I mean, and there might be skepticism from those that are listening to this, but I, like the reaction from clients was way better than expectations because they openly embraced both the principles, the output of the audit assessment, mm-hmm. and to some extent customize the principles themselves or the outputs of the audit to work out what was the most important for, thing for them. Because there are 10 principles and unlike you know your 10 commandments, In the 10 principles, all principles aren't created equal. Some will matter more to one organization than others. And so we did see clients adopt that. Again, the reason why we had so much success with that is because we grounded it and linked it back to corporate social responsibility and not about taking a political stance or position on things. And I think that's where... Again, we, were, we did the right thing and we, we've combated a lot of, you know, the, the, there's a lot of misinformation in the market about companies taking a stand on things because people go, well, I don't want to be too far to the left or too far to the right, or I don't want to be the arbiter of truth. Mm-hmm. And we looked at things like, and I'll, I'll take uh, COVID-19 information as an example. We said COVID-19 misinformation on our misinformation-disinformation principle was something we actually measured all the platforms against. And we go, because we know COVID-19 is a categorical thing happening in society. Misinformation about that is hurting the economy. It's hurting your businesses. You have retail operations or you sell products in store where store associates are serving customers. You do not want them exposed to the virus because someone comes in the store not wearing a mask. Mm -hmm so grounding it back into things that made sense for a brand and wasn't about we're trying to be the arbiters of truth but what actually protects society and the brand's best interests was the best way forward so clients loved it it's the too long don't read version
0: <laughs> no that's that's uh that's good to like good like good to know and understand that the um you know like there's a positive response to it as we know, on this podcast, you know, we've all been talking about how COVID-19 has been an accelerant to many different trends. Um, and I think this was one that, you know, as we were entering the year was becoming more of a conversation and people were thinking about it. But once we all started working from home and work, you know, working digitally and just, especially with an election year, um, you know, this became a very fundamental conversation and uh something that you know marketers advertisers and the industry as a whole needs to think through um to kind of position ourselves for success in the future
2: the bit that we haven't spoken about is there are two sides to this which is we're very and you know it is you know the floor nine podcast and we are in the media industry but there is media responsibility principles that we care about from an advertiser brand and an agency point of view but unless there's a broad groundswell of consumer sentiment and consensus of what they expect from the platforms, it's also going to be hard to get reform and change. And to Adam's point, I would say that applies regardless of whether they're paying or non-paying customers. So I think the public at large need to educate themselves on how platforms work, what the data is used, and how it interacts, because this isn't just about corporate responsibility. This is about individual responsibility and holding the platforms accountable. You know, and we've just come through an election here in the US and there'll be elections around the world. And I actually started the conversation this way at the beginning of the year, uh, pre-pandemic. And that is people need to be aware of their rights. They need to demand platforms act responsibility responsibly, and then they need mm-hmm. to push for regulatory reform. And so back to the uh, election, like, unless people are informed and demand their elected representatives actually take action in this area, it's going to be difficult to get things to change. But unless people, people need to be informed to demand change. Mm -hmm. So we need to use, you know, the democratic process and we need to push our regulators and get them to understand that these things matter and are important.
0: Absolutely. Uh, And for anybody that is looking for more information to get educated on that, uh, you can definitely, one, check out our IPG Media Lab website. Yeah, we have other podcasts on that. Uh, And, of course, you can follow Joshua Locock on Twitter uh, as he is always uh talking about and tweeting about this type of information so uh there are resources out there uh if you're looking to kind of expand your horizons on uh what all this means and how essentially you can uh push regulators and brands and publishers and platforms uh to be more accountable so with that Joshua thank you so much for coming on this week's episode of Floor 9 um, always fun It was an absolute pleasure we'll thank talk you. to you soon
2: Love it always happy to come back again Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Scott.